It's Friday the 11th of November, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. I'm David Wilder. I'm joined by Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing. Coming up, we'll be hearing from our China team about the future of the zero COVID policy. But first, I want to go on to the other big stories we're keeping an eye on. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. I hoped we could go a week without talking about inflation and central banks, but this isn't that week, is it? No such luck. We finally had a US CPI surprise on the downside. Our US teams have been spending months talking about how we're going to see signs of disinflation showing up in the official data. And that's what we got yesterday. October CPI headline and core well below what we're expecting, what the market had been expecting. Is this the beginning of the end of the inflation battle? Well, to coin a phrase, it may not be the beginning of the end, but it may be the end of the beginning. We, I, mean, I think the, the really striking point about the CPI data from the US was not just the, the extent of the downside surprise, but the fact that there were downside surprises in almost every category. So it wasn't just driven by one or two things. There were several sources of kind of disinflation and in the good side, at least outright deflation, particularly in vehicle prices. So, so yeah, we never read very much into one month's data, but it does look to us like that there are now pretty good reasons to, to think that both headline and core inflation have peaked. And then we had this extraordinary positive reaction in markets, S&P up 5.5%, NASDAQ up 7%. And it's only last week that we had these hawkish Jerome Powell comments in response to the FOMC statement and the market response to that. So can we expect him to come storming again into the market like some angry parent to tell the kids to cut it out? Well, I think that's the risk. The, the, particularly the moves in the bond market were extraordinary. We've We've only really seen kind of five or six days in the past 30 years where we had similar kind of rallies at the kind of middle part of the curve, the kind of five-year part of the curve as we saw on Thursday afternoon after the CPI data. So that, you know, it was a bond market rally for the ages. And you're right. I think the key thing to watch for um, this week will be uh, the extent to which there's a bit of pushback from any Fed officials and and whether Powell um, intervenes. Obviously, the bond market's closed. We're speaking on Friday. The bond market's closed in the US for, for Veterans Day. But we'll, the, the key thing to watch will be what happens on Monday when the market opens and, and how, the, how Fed officials respond and the extent to which you're right, they, they, they do push back. I think it was pretty clear from last from, from the last FOMC meeting that the last thing policymakers wanted was a loosening of financial conditions. And of course, rallying the bond market means that's exactly what we've got. Yeah. And I guess this this whole push and pull between the Fed and the markets is, is part of this bigger question, isn't it, about how you move from aggressively raising rates to, to perhaps signaling a slowing in, in the pace of rate hikes to the end of rate hikes and then to actually cutting interest rates. Our global central bank watch was out this week and it looked at previous uh, interest rate cycles and central bank statements. And I think the point it makes is that although we've got this idea of a smooth cycle in which rates rise and then they pause a bit and then they come back down. In fact, there's no such thing as a typical cycle from tightening rates to cutting them. Given how little that the historical record has to offer us in terms of when these phases of interest rate cycles shift, what should clients be watching for in terms of when central banks are ready to move? It's a really good question. It's a question we're asked a lot. I mean, I think the honest answer is that the central banks don't know. I wrote about this, or I'll be writing about this in my notes on Monday, that the kind of old models and the ways of thinking about inflation, I think, have started to be increasingly questioned. And we've, of course, been through phases like that, that in history, like this in history, where monetarism went in and out of vogue. More recently, it's about independent central banks, a kind of output gap, Phillips curve type framework. But that relied on there being a stable relationship between 
aggregate demand, aggregate supply, wages and prices. And and we've learned over the past 12, 18 months that, that there, there isn't really a stable relationship there. So I think the, the short point is central banks don't really know the extent to which they're going to have to tighten what the terminal rate will be. And so therefore, they don't, they're not really in a position to signal to markets that we're, we're basically done now. You know, we think this is where we need to get rates to and you know, this is the peak. So I think the, the whole debate about how will central banks signal the peak is slightly misguided because I don't think they really know where, where the peak will be and therefore where they've got to it. Um, there were some really interesting comments and there's been some interesting comments from ECB officials over the past couple of months, Isabel Schnabel in particular, basically saying that the old models don't really work. We have to put a bit less faith in our inflation forecast as a result and a bit more faith in actual inflation, actually what's happening to the to, to inflation as the data come in. And if that's the case, we know monetary policy operates with a lag. So there's, there's got to be a risk that central banks overdo things if they're going to be putting more weight on actual inflation rather than incoming inflation data. So I, I think that, yeah, the short answer to your question is the central banks don't really know. So it's very difficult to say what we should be looking for. But if central banks are putting more weight on actual inflation rather than forecast inflation, then clearly we need the inflation cycle to, to have definitively turned. Yeah, I was struck by a note from our Europe team this week talking about how the ECB is going to be basically raising interest rates in the middle of a recession. And, and they conclude that this will be unprecedented, but seems inevitable. There's a really interesting counterpoint in Poland. So here you've got a central bank whose tightening cycle appeared to have stalled out this week. They held this week at the meeting at 6.75%, even though inflation there is running at more than 17%. And you've got at least some on the, the national bank's MPC saying that the slowing economy will do the job of bringing down inflation. Uh, Liam Peach, who's an economist on our EM team, he's among critics who say that, that the bank's being too sanguine, that they're not taking the inflation threat seriously, that longer term inflation expectations are becoming unanchored. But you do have a central bank that's trying to balance this fight against inflation with, with growth concerns. Um, and I guess we just think they're on the wrong side of that debate. But the MBP isn't alone in trying to grapple with that, is it? It's not, no. But I think it's important to recognise that EM central banks are in a slightly different position to developed market central banks, in particular with respect to the anchoring of inflation expectations. Um, much more important that they remain anchored in in EMs than they than than in DMs, or perhaps put a different way, much more likely that they become unanchored in EMs, where there's perhaps a less of a well-established record in terms of keeping inflation under control than is the case in in developed markets. And of course, there's lot, lots of other structural factors affecting the Polish economy, particularly on the supply side. The, the, you know, there are echoes of that in what's happening in developed markets, but but not not necessarily to the same extent. I mean, 17% inflation is incredibly high and remarkable that the, that the MBP has chosen this moment to, to hold off from, from more tightening. And Neil, I can't let you go without talking about the big news for the coming week in the UK. It's the Chancellor's autumn statement on Thursday. Uh, anyone who's been living off planet Earth for the last few months may not know, but this is the moment when the UK government, the new UK government, is going to make formal amends with, with the market after the carnage of the Liz Truss regime and her unfunded tax cuts. Our UK team, which I think today said that the recession has has started here, is put out this detailed preview on what to expect. And on the day of the announcement, obviously, they'll be following with instant reactions, with in-depth analysis, and they'll be briefing clients later in the afternoon. Do you think there's a risk he's going to take fiscal tightening too far to appease the markets? 
I think there's a risk. I think there's a strong likelihood, if I'm being honest. I think we've swung from one extreme to the other in the UK. The first extreme was this promise of unfunded tax cuts, excessive unfunded tax cuts by Kwasi Kwarteng and Chancellor under Liz Truss. I think the market, if you cast your mind back to that, the, the first statement by Kwarteng, the market had basically digested the idea that national insurance was going to be cut in the UK and that planned corporation tax increases were not going to go ahead. The bond market had digested that, it had been leaked to the media, and basically markets had taken that in their stride. It was then when additional tax cuts were implemented on the income side, and the Chancellor went on the airwaves, took the, took the airwaves and said, you know, just, just you wait, we're not done yet, there's more to come, that the markets fell out of bed. That was clearly reckless and irresponsible, um, and the markets responded accordingly. On the other hand, I think you can make the case that that Sunak and Hunter are going from one extreme to the other, that they're going too far in the other direction. It's not just the case that they're looking to kind of plug the so-called black hole in the public finances, there, which may be about £40 billion pounds on some project projections, but frankly, there's a lot of uncertainty over that. It looks like he's trying to build headroom of another £10 billion pounds too. So, I mean, that, that which is kind of madness on some level when the economy's in recession trying to build fiscal buffers fiscal policies there to operate operate in a counter-cyclical way so i think there's there's a, a it's not just a risk he's going to overdo it i think there's a strong likelihood he's going to to overdo things and and that we're swinging from one extreme to the other and therefore that the real economy or other things being equal will suffer of course if he does do more then the bank of england will respond by doing doing less so to the extent we do get more fiscal tightening that presents a bit of downside risk to our view that interest rates in the uk will, will go all the way to five percent and i guess if he does announce the, the, the level of tightening that we're expecting that that's medium term that's negative for the uk growth outlook but you've also written extensively about the uk's dismal productivity growth rates Whatever the outcome on Thursday, those rates aren't going to receive any sort of near-term help from number 11, are they? No, they're not. Not least because there's a long history of this in the UK, that whenever there's a big fiscal squeeze that needs to be undertaken, it's always public investment that gets clobbered first. And I suspect this time will be no difference. And of course, if you're looking to increase productivity, raise productivity, public infrastructure and public investment is one of the ways to do that. So I suspect in some respects, this is going to, to make things worse rather than better in the, in the long run. That was Neil Shearing. So rumours of an end to China's zero COVID policy have swept financial markets in recent weeks. Uh, they've been bid up on hope that these draconian rules will finally be scrapped, that life and business can get back to normal. Here's a discussion between Mark Williams and Julian Evans Pritchard from our China team about what's happening with the policy. It's worth noting that this was recorded on Thursday, and the next day the Chinese government did announce some tweaks to the rules, but they were just tweaks. The party line is still to stick unswervingly to zero COVID. On that note, here's the chat. And it begins with Mark talking about the problems the government previously had when it tried to loosen the rules. Going back to um, the lockdown in Tianjin in January of this year, which I think was the first Omicron outbreak in China, that was also quite light touch in many ways. You know, they were locking down individual compounds rather than the whole city. And of course, that succeeded and that kind of adaptive policy succeeded until it didn't succeed and completely fell apart. So I'm not entirely sure that anything really has changed. They'll try and have a, a light touch policy, but... We know that that is really difficult. 
That's a good point, because you could actually argue that part of the reason for the eventual scale of the Shanghai lockdown is because of the shift towards lighter touch policies. And I think that you know does raise some concerns about what's happening right now, particularly in in, in Guangzhou, cases are now, you know, at the levels that they were when Shanghai announced its lockdown. And for the moment, they're still sticking with the sort of lighter touch targeted measures. And obviously, that's great as long as those measures are enough to deal with the outbreak. But clearly, the risk is that they might not be. And at, by the point that that they realize that it's not enough, then, you know, the virus is already widespread within the city and they have to look, keep restrictions very tight for a long period of time, which is obviously what happened in, in Shanghai. So, uh, yeah, it does feel to me that that they're trying to walk this tightrope, but it is, it is very difficult. Do you think there's anything significant in the fact that Li Changgang in Shanghai, the former Shanghai party boss, appears to be in line to be Li Keqiang's successor as as Premier. Can we read anything into that, that the severity with which he clearly was happy to lock down Shanghai might be replicated elsewhere? It's an interesting question. I mean, clearly what happened in, in Shanghai didn't hold back his career prospects in that he was still promoted regardless. He's obviously demonstrated a willingness to to reverse course and, 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 and lock down hard if need be. I mean, it's not clear at this stage you know, what his role in, in directing COVID policy is or, or will be in the future. And obviously, I you know, imagine that there's a broader discussion among the central leadership over what the correct policy will be. But certainly f- for now, I don't see any sort of real evidence that their, that their goals have changed. You know, maybe they're, they're trying to tweak their approach, make it more precise and less disruptive. But it, it still seems to me that there's no evidence that the goal isn't still COVID zero. So that's why I take you know, all these rumors with a pinch of salt at this stage. I think we see this in, in other areas of Chinese policy now have done over the over the past, you know, well, many years, that you you see situations where a lot of analysts look at it and say, well, this is clearly untenable. And so for that reason, they will change policy. And we can say, yeah, like the one child policy, you could you could say it was very similar. It was clear twenty years ago that this was going to save up, you know, create huge problems for, for China in the decades to come. But it, but that there was no change, of course, until it was far too too late. So it is sort of striking that you often get the analysts saying, well, they can't continue with this because of the economic cost. They can't continue with it because the fiscal cost for local government. But yeah, that that way of thinking has never really been particularly successful, I think, in predicting what what will happen for things that where there's where the leadership has previously really put its weight in one direction. As you say, there's no real sign that, that the leadership is having a major changes of, of view on this. What do you make of that fiscal argument? I mean, that's one of the ones that we've heard quite a bit recently that, you know, local governments just can't afford to keep this up. Well, I think it's one reason that the local governments might push back a bit, you know, and complain to to their bosses in Beijing that this is, you know, proving very costly and very difficult. But at the end of the day, no local level uh, official is going to go at it alone and, and move away from zero COVID you know, without uh, a shift in policy from the top. So I guess the question is, is the central government, central leadership willing to you know, continue to see this this sort of fiscal pressure on local governments? And I suspect the answer probably is, you know, yes, in order to, to maintain the, the zero COVID policy. And, and I think a key point here is that you brought up the one-child policy and how they stuck with it for for a long time, but a difference with with the zero COVID policy is you know moving away from the one-child policy is relatively straightforward, but moving away from the zero COVID policy would come at a significant 
past. And I think that's often overlooked, you know, particularly given that at the moment, China's vaccination rate among the elderly is still quite low. It's lower than, than it was in most countries that, that had a, a similar sort of zero COVID policy and then moved away uh, from it. And so abandoning the zero COVID policy now would have a significant health consequences, but also probably significant economic costs, because in order to prevent the healthcare system from being overwhelmed, they probably actually have to tighten restrictions across much of the country because at the moment, even with, you know, even given how bad things are right now, more than half of the the country is not facing any outbreak at all. And, and, and daily life is largely unaffected by the pandemic. But obviously, if you were to reopen, the whole country would be facing major outbreaks. And in order to sort of prevent that from overwhelming the, the healthcare system, you'd actually need much wider social distancing measures. And that would probably result in an even greater economic cost than the, than the zero COVID policy is at the moment. So yes, while it's untenable in the long term, you can understand why, it, you know, that there's a reluctance to shift away from it in, in the short run. Yeah. And the other element of that is, of course, that during, I guess, since the beginning of the pandemic, in general, there's never really been a major risk of catching COVID outside of a few cities at any one time in, in China. So although we're seeing that the service sector activity, consumer spending is, is really depressed, that's not because people are worried about going out and catching COVID. They're worried about going out and and getting stuck into quarantine and having to explain to their neighbours that they're all going into quarantine too. So if you were, if it were allowed to spread widely, we'd be in a very new world. And I suspect then that that we'd see, as we saw in in many countries around the world in 2020, that that people are very nervous about going out. So yeah, the I did find I have found this rather strange the way that the market reacted to these rumours that zero COVID might be lifting by sort of thinking this is unequivocally positive. Uh, development. I, I, I could imagine there being a really lengthy period of of major disruption, potentially bigger disruption on the supply side as well to industry if if it's spreading widely around the country. Again, you know, that's one of the points that we've emphasised over the past couple of years is that actually industry is, has been, you know, has been industrial output is extremely high. It's been able to meet very strong global demand because industry has not been too badly disrupted. But an early end to zero COVID would probably would probably change. Them. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, if you look at the countries that that shifted to living with the virus, after they made that shift, actually in the short run, when they had the big sort of reopening wave of virus cases, in almost all cases, mobility actually decreased during that period. So, you know, the initial reopening wave was negative. And even, you know, six months after the the, the shift in policy towards living with the virus, in most cases, you know, mobility was still way down relative to pre-pandemic levels. And it was only really when you get to sort of nine months or, or more after the, the, the shift to reopening that you really start to see the benefits of that in terms of a return to normality. So there's the, quite a drawn out transition period that you need to get through. And as I you know, just mentioned, in, in most cases, the countries that made this transition were actually in a much better position in terms of their vaccination rates among the elderly, in terms of their healthcare capacity. So it's going to be even more challenging for China and probably an even more drawn out transition period. And, and I think that's essentially why we don't think it would make much sense for them to, to move away from, zero, from the zero code policy 
anytime soon because we don't think they're, they're ready to do so. But if they were, for whatever reason, to move away in the near term, either because that's you know what the, what the central government decide or, or simply because the zero COVID policy just falls apart because they don't contain the, the, the recent outbreaks, then you're looking at a very challenging transition period, a lot more challenging that, than we've seen in the likes of, of Singapore or Korea, Japan. I think that's an interesting point that a lot of the discussion is sort of suggesting that when and 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 how zero covid ends is is in the hands of of the policymakers in Beijing, but there must be a, a reasonable chance that it ends just because because it becomes overwhelmed if they try to relax in some areas, then it becomes overwhelmed. Can we? I want to ask you a bit about um, exactly how the exit happens. I think it's fairly clear, at least in our view, that they will need to raise the vaccination rate of the of the elderly. Uh, we're not helped particularly here by the fact that they haven't published any data on the vaccination rates amongst the very elderly, the 80 plus population. Um, but the last time we did have numbers, which I think was July, we were still a quarter of that population had not had a single jab. Um, so on that basis, it seems reasonable that it's going to be several months at least before anything happens. And the argument you've made before is if they don't, if they can't get to that opening by the summer of next year, then they run into the flu season at the end of next year. So probably it doesn't happen. It goes into 2024. There's a, there's a suggestion though that, that to people, a lot of people are talking about a gradual reopening from zero COVID, which obviously there's a sort of a, a, a policy preference in, in Beijing for moving gradually in all kinds of different areas of policy. But I'd be interested in your thoughts on this idea of a kind of a, how that work, could, could that work? And specifically there's, there's some, some people talking about kind of geographical patchy opening, allowing the more the more kind of globally facing parts of the country to open before the rest and so on. I mean, as you say, that's the sort of standard Chinese approach to, to gradually make shifts in policy. But I think that's just very hard to do or essentially impossible to do when it comes to COVID just because of the nature of the, the way the virus spreads. You know, either you manage to contain the, the outbreak relatively early on, or it will just continue to expand until large you know, numbers of the population have been infected. And there's no sort of real stable equilibrium in between that. So yes, of course, you can relax the containment measures gradually. But once you reach that tipping point, then the virus response is definitely not gradual. The, the, you know, the virus case numbers explode. Uh, and that's what we've seen in other countries, even though they've taken a gradual approach to easing the, the virus restrictions, you know, cases at some point have just, just exploded. And that's the challenge that, that they face. Now, one way uh, to get around that, as you say, would be to, to do it geographically. So reopen in certain parts of the country, you allow cases to soar there, but you try to prevent it from spreading to, to the rest of the country. I think that would probably be very impractical though because it's already been a challenge for the government to prevent cases from slipping in uh, across the international border which is obviously much more easy to manage than if you're trying to put in place strict sort of border controls of between provinces between cities it would be a huge headache for, for domestic logistics for trucking and I just think that it would yeah, it, it would just be very challenging to pull off. Uh, and I imagine that at some point, you know, if you had hundreds of thousands of cases in, in certain parts of the country, that they would eventually kind of filter through to, to the rest of the country, even if you try to impose these kind of internal border controls. As you say, the, the foreign border, the border between China and the rest of the world is porous to, to COVID. And that's even with a massive reduction in the number of 
incoming passengers every day flows between provinces and between cities in China at, you know, multiple orders of magnitude higher than are coming across the, the Chinese international border at the moment. So you'd have to have absolutely colossal kind of quarantine facilities and, and so on. As you say, the, I mean, particularly the, the places that people are suggesting could do this first, the ports, the export set centers are the ones that have the most built up infrastructure supply chain links with the rest of the country, which, which then leads me to think that, that, that it's going to be extremely difficult to do this in a managed way. Doing it in a, obviously losing control would be very bad from the perspective of the standing of the leadership that have made great play with, with China's success in keeping mortality low and keeping disruption low in, in China. So I do wonder whether there's an underappreciated chance that there isn't actually an end. All the discussion has been about whether zero COVID would end after the party Congress, after the National People's Congress in March or, or, or whenever, but. Coming back to sort of the one-child policy, it's, it, 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 I see kind of quite a lot of parallels there. That you've got a policy that clearly is sort of does, is not good for the long run for for China, huge costs. But at the same time, there's a there's a kind of a weight of of a long period of propaganda and messaging behind why this is a good thing. You've now got an inst institutions, um, lots of people whose jobs kind of depend on this system remaining in in place. There's people sort of say, I think there's a story a few days ago talking about, you know, 1% of GDP or something is now spent testing. And that's probably wrong to think about it in terms of percentage of GDP, but certainly there are, there, there is a, you know, there's people whose, whose jobs are, are in this system, just as you had with family planning commission that, that, that don't want to go away. So what about the possibility that there is no end to this, that, you know, the rules are, the rules are tweaked, but in five years time, if you want to go to public places, you still need to show your green health code. And you can see why that might be appealing to an autocracy in many ways. So are we underappreciating that risk? Well, I wouldn't completely rule it out, but I, I do think it's unlikely. I, I think one counter argument is that compared with the one child policy, this is having a much more kind of a much greater impact on on people's daily lives you know what you can see whenever there's uh, lockdowns to you know it, it does cause some social pushback you know, we've seen a number of you know protests in, in response to, to lockdown measures across the country obviously nothing that kind of you know severely threatens the the the, the communist party's rule but i think enough to you know, maybe make them think twice about continuing this policy indefinitely. I just think that the the, the sort of social stability cost of, of having this policy in place indefinitely would be quite, quite large. I do think that there's still hope that developments either in terms of mutations to the to the virus or developments in terms of new vaccines, new drugs could make it easier to, to, to move away from zero COVID in the future. There's an interesting case with this new inhalable vaccine that's being rolled out in many cities in China. It's not clear at this stage how effective that vaccine is, but there is the potential for greater protection against transmission through this type of sort of inhalable vaccine just because it is directly administered to, to the, the, the nose and throats where the, where the body is most vulnerable to the vaccine. So scientists have suggested it's possible that this could be a game changer, but at, at this stage we just don't know because there's no sort of real-world studies on its efficacy. There's also the possibility of greater therapeutics and, of course, a Chinese uh, mRNA vaccine. Of course, none of that really answers the question of why they aren't pushing the vaccines that they already have 
much more forcefully on on the population in order to prepare for a move away from zero COVID. So that's still one of the sort of big question marks at the moment. And I think that kind of plays into your point about how serious are they really about moving away from zero COVID if they're not sort of mandating the, these vaccines. Um, but I, I do still feel that eventually they will do so, but probably just a lot later than than some people currently expect. So if there's, just to wrap this up, if there's one thing then that we should be watching as the gauge of, of whether and then they're serious about wanting to end zero COVID and moving towards it on a time frame of months rather than years, it would be what, the vaccination rate? I think that's the biggest barrier, the single biggest barrier to them moving away from zero COVID at the moment is the low vaccination rate around the elderly. So if we see greater efforts on that front, you know, vaccine mandates, then that would be a clear sign that they're getting more serious. But until we see, see that, you know, one does have to wonder, despite all these rumours, how how serious they really are about, about moving away from, from the, the policy anytime soon. And that's it for now. You can find all our work on US inflation, tightening cycles, the MBP, the UK fiscal statement and zero COVID on our website, along with much, much more. So check out capitaleconomics.com. And until next week, goodbye.